Hello and welcome to the Underwater Sunshine Podcast. I am but one of your hosts. My name is Adam. I am James. We're here together to talk to you about some music shit. Um, <laughs> so, you know, a few weeks ago before the uh, festival started, we had we did an episode called Teenage Superstars. We talked about all those kids that grew up in the Bells Hill area outside of Glasgow, uh, Norman Blake, uh, Sean Dixon, Douglas Stewart, uh, Ray McGinley, uh, Joe Macklin, and the bands they formed, uh, Teenage Fan Club, Soup Dragons, uh, BMX Bandits. They all played in them together and with each other. Later, the members of the Vaselines were also in there. Boy Hairdressers Band. Uh, the Vaselines, of course, later became Eugenius. Teenage Fan Club became Teenage Fan Club. And the Soup Dragons also became the Soup Dragons. Mm-hmm. Uh, but tonight, we want to talk about one of the guys who we talked about. Uh, Joe McAlinden, who was... The classically trained guy, he played violin, he played trumpet, he played all kinds of horns, and he's a guitar player and a singer. He plays on, he, he arranges strings for Teenage Fan Club, for BMX Bandits, he plays bass in BMX Bandits, uh, sings, he's the singer on Serious Drugs, which we played for you in that podcast. And at some point in there, he forms a band called Superstar. And we started off the last podcast playing you uh, Sparkle by Superstar, and we finish that podcast by playing you Taste and Aftertaste from the first Superstar EP release, uh, Greatest Hits Volume 1. And today, we want to take you back to that time, to 1993, 94, when Joe McElhinney formed the band uh, with Nellie Grant and Raymond Pryor, and they put out, I think in 1992 or 3, Greatest Hits Volume 1, and then in 1994, in June or September, they release the eponymously titled album, mm-hmm. Superstar. And we want to get into that because this is the beginning of one of the greatest bands. Uh, I, I I loved this band so much. I think I got played... They they played them for me in those record stores in London, uh, Minus Zero, and why can I never remember both of the record store names? I'll figure them out at the break. But let's just start you off right away with the second song off the first album, which is Feels Like Forever. Do you want to say anything about it? Or I, play? I do. Um, right I just want to uh, 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 add to what you were saying about how good this band is. It, it, there is, you know, in the pantheon of rock and roll, there are great debuts. It's, 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 it's a rarity, but when it does happen, it's, it really sets the stage for what the band is like. Uh, my, my co-host to the left had one of those. Uh, I'm thinking of, like, the first Doors record, the first Guns N' Roses album, records in which absolutely you know exactly what you're going to get from this band. They set the course for their careers, that you know everything about this band. And I just, I can't say enough. I thank Adam. I just, I think I actually uh, thanked him when we were going back and forth listening to these songs over the last couple of weeks. Just introduce me to this band because that record is one of my favorites now. So we're going to play, I guess I'm assuming we're going to start with the first record and then we'll move on to Palm Tree and other things. But this record is just, I can't say enough about it. And the weird thing about it is you can't find this anywhere. No, you they're can't. very hard to find, these records. Let's just start it off and play You Feels Like Forever. Listen to this. It's <laughs> it'll amazing. give you a concept. There's about, of the five or six songs on Greatest Hits Volume 1, the first EP, three or four of them are repeated on, on this Superstar, but they're different versions of them. Uh, and we're going to play the versions from Superstar rather than bounce back deciding which to play from right. which. Yeah. But this one is, is solely on Superstar. This is just a great... Rock, pop, pop, rock, 
Yeah. Power, like big starish power pop. Like it's just a great piece of guitar harmony magic. And a wonderful solo in this. It re- everything about this band you'll be hearing over this podcast and maybe a couple of them is, is really depicted in this song. Second song, first side, I assume in the days of sides. First, second song from the very first Superstar album, they come out of the shoots screaming. <laughs> Something before 
That's a, there's so many great things, and, and we were talking while it was going on, and um, make your point in a second about the the Big Star reference, and of course you'll hear a lot of that in this podcast because these guys clearly influenced by Big Star, but it's just they don't just lay on a really great riff, which it has a great rock and roll riff. They do so many things vocally with this, and I love the, the that whole ending part where they do. I was making the joke about the faces thing, where you just you know you land on a halftime rock and roll, and then they just go into this double time, and the the, the you know the lead kicks in, and then they throw in those do 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 do. It's fantastic. There's so many things going on in that song. So many. Yeah, I mean. It's quint- It's classic Big Star coming in on the second verse like that with the ooze behind it, right. the harmony ooze. But what I also love about him is like they don't just write a guitar riff, which is a great guitar riff. That it's a nice guitar riff that song. It's got a great vocal melody, but he writes harmony hooks too, like oh, yeah. like like harmony parts that are like guitar riffs. Like he's not just going to do ahs over an outro. He's writing a part for those ahs to do, and then he he'll interact a guitar with. Yes. Uh, with uh, the harmonies, uh, it's just I think that's fantastic. The, the big star influence is really clear to see that they're very inventive. You know, they're not just l- resting on. They find a cool thing. They don't just let that support the song. They'll do like three other things that work with it too. Absolutely. Um, and and I will say also, you'll hear in a lot of these songs too. He has a very understated, sweet way of singing that is not overkill in any way, shape, or form. But there are moments where he just lets it fly, like that song. He just that one moment where he just. You know, he hits that yeah. note. He doesn't do that. There's not a lot of histrionics here with his vocals. And the band is always in the pocket. They have pockets and dynamics in these songs, and they work so beautifully. I mean, if you do what we do, which is to listen to a shitload of music and listen to all different styles and genres, when someone nails something like this on every kind of level, it makes this so much fun. It's a nugget that you find. And this is why I'm, I'm going to keep saying throughout this podcast, it's just criminal. You can't find these records. So you can't get them on iTunes or Spotify or, you know, and I don't know, you, you mentioned, you know, if you try to look for, for them on eBay, they're not even findable there if you, you know, forget about vinyl. Well, it's funny, they're kind of there as the last gasp of indie rock on CD, you know, like this is when I was in, it's Standout Records, Bill Allerton's uh, shop, Bill Forsyth had minus zero, and Bill Forsyth was, they both loved American guitar pop, uh, Bill Forsyth uh, leaned towards more, uh, as well as uh, obscure British folk music and Bill Allerton, American guitar pop and more of the heavier uh, stuff. Uh, but I remember him playing me Superstar and just being flipped by how cool it was because at the time there were bands like this. There were bands that people like me who were clearly really influenced by Big Star, like Teenage Fan Club, like uh, Almost all Travis, Travis yeah, you sure. know, people that really loved that music. And... Uh, I remember hearing this and just being like, oh, this is something completely different and waiting for it to be the next big thing too. And it never really happened. And I, every once in a while I'd look around and I'd find a new CD by a uh, superstar that came out or a CD single. I used to make a lot of those back then. But, you know, it's that period where it's still indie college radio and it didn't necessarily translate to the internet. And they did, their career didn't necessarily overlap as much with the internet as it happened. So... Their stuff doesn't end up on it because, you know, six or seven years later when that stuff's really starting to take off, they're sort of quitting um, for a while. And that's right when you really needed to be there for that stuff to be existing on the Internet now. Right. Well, for this album in particular, I mean, this I don't know about, you know, timing is everything in pop music as as it is in almost everything, uh, if not everything. Uh, This is post Nirvana, you know, the grunge stuff. 
well, pre-rock pop of the mid-90s, late-90s, like Green Day and Blink-182. This is in the middle. They, they're doing things that would become very popular in the mid to late 90s, and I know they continue throughout that, but this record in particular comes out, what, 92, 93? Yeah, but it's the same time as Teenage Fan Club, which has a pretty huge success with that. Yeah, I guess. You know what I mean? It's true. There, it's, you know, it's a year or two behind Teenage Fan Club at most. Right. Um, because this is 94, and the other one was 90... This is 93 or 94, the other one was 92, Great Hits Volume 1. Right. And, you know... Uh, Bandwagon-esque is also 92 or 91. Right. It's right then, too. You know? And by so the way, I love this record as much, if not more, than those records. I mean, I, I adore this album. I, I think it's a perfect record. It's just that, for whatever reason, it didn't catch on in the same way. They were on like a, they were on EMA, EMI in America. You know, Teenage Fan Club's on Geffen in America. And that's a really good label to be on right then. There right. are label mates on DGC. So that, like, that label is doing really well with everything from Peter Gabriel to Nirvana, Nirvana. to us, yeah. to Teenage Fan Club, to... Sure. The Sundays, right then, or a few years before, a couple of years before, right. you know, they're having a lot of success, and they're they're especially aimed at that uh, indie rock college radio market that blows up right then. And sure. EMI, much more of a mainstream. Their success at that moment is like EMF. Remember that band? Yeah. You know. Yeah. So that's like that's a different, you know, and and I think they signed, they were on Creation, and then they signed. Uh, superstar and buried them basically that it was useless they did nothing for them and they and so they sort of died in america and that that can really hurt you as a band it's a lot harder unless you can become massive somewhere else if you can't it's just brutal yeah and and if i could say aside from uh, you know i mentioned blink 182 or green day um both bands i really like i love green day but this band is way more expansive in there this record does not just have power rock pop there are homages to the Beatles style. There's horn sections. There's Bacharach David types music. And, and, oh, and, very influenced by Bacharach David yes. as well. Yes. And so they're going this, – this album show is more than just a power pop rock. That's what they do really well, and probably 60% of it, 75% of it is that. But there are songs we're going to play here that show you they are very diverse. But the and, best power pop rock bands like them, like Gigolo Ants, like uh, Teenage Fan Club, all have their roots in uh, Burt Bacharach. And so does uh, and the Beatles everyone string. from right. the Beatles and Burt Bacharach and Big Star. That's your triumvirate right there, as well as the Beach Boys. I mean, that's true also of uh, Elvis Costello. You go back. I mean, anyone writing guitar pop, you know, the best hooky stuff, because right, right. Melodies is all Burt yeah. Bacharach's about, you know, and they're, all, all these people were listening to that Joe and Jackson able to make and... a song... You know, all the Dan Penn stuff, right. the Dusty Springfield records, those sure. all have that backrack influence in them as well. With the horns and the strings, you'll hear There's yeah. actually a song on this record that's, that easily could fit into the late 1960s. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I know exactly what you're talking about. But let's play one more <laughs> yeah. that's more this kind. As we're saying, like, that Big Star is involved. And not only is Big Star involved, but Alex Chilton actually plays on this record, and we'll get into that after this. Yeah, that's right. But uh, when I say they're influenced by Chris Bell and Alex Chilton and Big Star, it does mean beautiful melodies and really cool harmonies, but it also means completely rocking and riffing guitars you know uh so great guitars and melodies and harmonies which is a perfect uh summation of this song which is called barfly right um i i love this song and just the the and I, another thing that the 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 verse line that is a signature line that repeats throughout the song to all my friends which is the title of the great single off of the last big star record all My Friends is the single off right. of Big Star's third, Sister Lovers. Right. And I, I can't help but think that's a reference in here. Uh, sure. You know, at least just like a, a name check in a way. Right. And it comes right after yeah, uh, I mean, Feels Like Forever. To yeah. all my friends, please don't expect too much. To all my friends, it's all too much. You know, that's just the... <laughs> yeah. um, 
Anyways, let's play you bar fly, and you'll hear a little more, a little more guitar here. Uh, this is once again Superstar from the album Superstar, 1994. This is bar fly. If I may give some love to the monkeys uh, for a moment, uh, I'm doing a writing project right now, and I'm researching late 60s rock pop, and did you know that in 1967, More Monkeys was the number one album on Billboard charts for the year? Not Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Arts Club Band. The monkeys had a huge influence, I think, on something like that. That part where he's going, da-da-da, that, that bit, and then when they go, they do that stop with the drum part. Yeah. It's really cool, and I am not dispatched by The More Monkeys record, by the way, is the first record that actually has Torque and Nesmith writing on it. So they, th- those are some oh. songs that are actually written by the guys in the band. But anyway, that, that song does remind me of that kind of late 60s rock pop very well. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think it's a big part of it. Uh, I-, I love that song, personally. I- I just, it just kills me. It's a great song? Yeah. Um, so this next one is actually is the one that has Alex Chilton on it. He's playing some electric guitar, I think, in the background. Uh, <clears throat> it is one of the more beautiful songs. It's just absolutely beautiful, powerful uh, 
it begins with like it just sounds like a string quartet to me i think and the first verse is just over like and that's the first chorus just sparse strings and the vocalist um and in the second they bring in i think an acoustic guitar or harpsichord something is providing some regular time tick 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 instrument playing there i don't know if it's a strumming or picking guitar can't hear it well enough to tell uh and then it's all the way until you get to the bridge uh it's another verse and chorus before like the drums and everything really come in Mm -hmm. in the bridge um this is beautifully arranged, this song. Yeah, and there's a little instrumental after that where he brings in these mid-range horns, like horns that aren't playing big high parts, mm. but in the sort of just, just slightly high mid-range part where there's nothing else playing. Uh, and it's a beautiful, I don't know if it's a trombone or a French horn or something, it's in that middle range, it sounds like. Uh, and everything comes together for the outro courses on the way out. And uh, there's a thing Joe McLennan does with his singing, this incredible fragility over an absolutely beautiful melody. Oh, line. one of the best. But it sounds like it's going to fall apart. And he'll do it throughout on different songs throughout their career. Uh, and this is the first place I remember hearing him really break it apart like that. Is mm-hmm. this song, which is called "I Don't Want to Die" or "Don't Want to Die"? Yeah. Um, you you want to say anything about this? Aside from everything you said, uh, uh, you know about the melody, it's just beautiful, and the arrangement's fantastic. I'm wondering who did you mention it before? Who produced this record? Do we know? I don't know. I, I kind of think he did, but I'm not sure about because, that. Because, and, and I know you mentioned uh, in the uh, Teenage Superstars episode how um, these guys were very much in their other uh, acts and as they were going going up, how they put a great deal of um, emphasis on arranging songs, how songs are presented, and you, you could clearly see the love and attention to that on this record, and in particular this song. Well, uh, a lot of that on all those records yeah. is him. Yeah, I mean, that's what I'm all saying. Those, yeah. All those different bands it probably records, would be him. It is largely, you know, the orchestral arrangements for Teenage Fan Club. Right. Joe McAlinden. Right. Uh, he's playing bass, trumpet, and strings and stuff on BMX Bandits records. So, right. you know, you look at the credits of those, and it's it's him as well. And this is like a culmination. This is like his 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 masterpiece as far as not only songwriting and and the way the the songs are presented, but the arranging of it, the production. It's all really right there on this record. Well, not to me. I, I love know. this record, but it, to me, it's not the masterpiece. Right, the next one that's is, right. That's we disagree right. on this slightly, and we'll we get do, into we that do. But it's I fun. love this record. Don't get me wrong. I absolutely love right. this record. And I me, love Palm Tree, but yeah. Yeah. they reach their true like apex on Palm Tree for And that's me, a better a sounding. Later. I will give you that. That's a better sound. This, this album is a little bit raw sounding. Well, that's not a good word for that. It's not really raw. It's more... Um, it's pretty lush. I am, and it especially because it's much more lush than Greatest Hits Volume One is. The versions of the songs that are on Greatest Hits Volume One and also on True, you can tell the difference. You here. can tell the difference. The production is yeah. much richer on this song, on right. this record, than and on this that. song. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, and this, this is this song on both. I can't remember. I Barfly was definitely on both. It is on both. Uh, don't want to die. I don't know if it is. I can't remember. But uh, why don't you play this? And <laughs> this is like one of the things I love about Joe Macklin and is his ability to write. But actually, also to deliver and sing songs like this. He just has a way of singing and a voice that works in these situations. But it's a technique, too. It's a way of singing that is like, it's just so, it, you feel like it's going to fall apart any second, and it doesn't. But it's very, very on the edge of it. And it, this song is so beautiful to me. It really is. Uh, this is a Superstar, Don't Want to Die.
Can I ask you a question about the lyrics? Uh, yeah. I have not been able to figure out exactly... I have a few theories about where what this he's saying in this song. First of all, when he sings I Don't Want to Die Without You, when he goes to that falsetto, is... <laughs> it's it's wonderful. But... um, And with the string arrangements, it's something like, you know, it, it reminds me of, of the best of, of what Phil Spector did in the, in the early 60s, mid-60s, and, uh, you know, She's Leaving Home, the Beatles... Uh, where there's, like you said, there's no other rhythm instruments. It's completely his voice and the strings. But it sounds like he's leaving for war or he's going away that he he just want. I don't want to die without you. Sounds like it because he says, I want to write her a letter. She knows, she knows why I'm leaving. She knows that I must go. It doesn't stop me thinking what I want her to know. I don't want to die without you. That, I, I don't know why I think that. That's where my mind went. And then he writes to her sister, you know, or her friend, excuse me, to to uh, then her friend can tell her what I'm. Why is he not, not writing to her? I, it's very very mysterious. This lyric. Well, I I always assumed he was just leaving for tour. That he he really you know like especially when you're young and you're leaving for tour. I imagine it's pretty hard for your girlfriend. Well, you've to talked trust about that you or wonder yeah. where you're going to go yeah. and how yeah. that must feel. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of uncertainty in that. And I think what he's saying is you know I, I don't die without you. Like no matter what, I'm leaving for tour. I've got to go, and you know I've got to go. But you know. I want to end up with you, and that's the same. I'm not really leaving. I'm just I'm got to go to work, you know. Right. And I, you know, but the use of die there is very well. That's, that's what like put it in my head. You want to end up together, sure. You know, I don't want to die without you. I don't want to like, die without you. You know, as he's saying, left again this morning. I know before too long we'll be back together, mm-hmm. even though it's not for long. You know, he's like saying, you know, I'm, I'm coming back home, and but I've got to go away again. That's just how this works, you know. Um, in the angelic way, he sings it too. She couldn't so. speak. She couldn't. She didn't cry. I only hope she didn't lie. I couldn't spend another day without you. You know, he doesn't, you know, he wants to, mm-hmm. she says she loves him when he's leaving too. So, you know, she'll be there when he gets back. He hopes it's true. You know, I love that line. Maybe she'd feel better if I wrote her friend a letter. Then her friend could tell her I'm never far away. Like that, like, yes, I, I you know, not just, I'm not just going to say it to you. I'll say it to your friend as well. So everybody knows that I'm yours, you know, like, yes, that, you know, that's not just, it's one thing to say it to you. It's another thing to tell other people too, that I'm yours, you know, like, right. and I thought that's very sweet, that line. Oh, it is. And coming, I gotta say the moment before that, when it comes out of the second chorus, first of all, those choruses, like you said, the, I don't want to die without you lines are amazing painfully beautiful that melody is so good and his voice keening up into that falsetto it's gorgeous uh, but then right as it comes into there and the strings and it builds into that she didn't speak she couldn't speak she, it builds into the bridge that's one of my favorite moments in music that is like dun 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 that, that's incredible yes. build with the strings uh, and then it comes out of that and breaks down into that sort of like mid mid range Burt Bacharach horn part melody yes. for a second, and then it falls completely apart to the part that maybe she'd feel better. Mm-hmm. Uh, it just then it comes back up again. It just kills me how good that arrangement is. Yes, um, and you 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 uh, qualified while it was playing. Not so we'll share it. He did produce this record, so yeah, it yeah. goes back to the whole you know um, uh, you know the Beach Boys idea of Brian Wilson in there. He has it in his head. He gets it out onto tape, and that is. It's fantastic. The auteur kind of concept. Of yeah, that. and I read an interview with him at one point where he's talking about, uh, they, they ask him about, you know, you were obviously classically trained, you're brought up in this, how does that affect you when you're doing it in the songs? He goes, well, I mean, it's hard for me to get that out of it, and I, uh, it's not, I know that strings and horns can be great on songs, just throwing them in there, they'll make anything sound kind of classy, right. but... Uh, 
But that's not the case here. No, he says, but I come from a background where I'm always thinking about that anyways. And I come from much more of a classical background with the orchestral arrangements than the, as he calls it, the the guys with the turtlenecks who are like the pop arrangers for it. He says, I come from much more classical, so you really get... Uh, I can't get that out of what I'm doing with horns and strings. They always had that sort of broke or you know classical sensibility sure. as opposed to just the walls of strings and the walls of horns, um, which is the, he calls it the guys with the turtlenecks mm-hmm. or doing those arrangements. And we, oh, and, oh no, he says, when, and when we bring the people in to play on it, like some of these early on, it's probably more him, but later on, I'm sure there are, uh, when they have the big contract, maybe there are guys, or maybe it's this record where there are guys from they're bringing guys in. I don't know, but. Uh, he says we bring in when we bring in guys to play on stuff. We bring in the classical players from the orchestra, not right. not the turtleneck guys who do the pop records. You know what I mean? Like, sure, uh, sure. Because uh, he's writing it as a foundation, and that's why it's a difference here. What he's doing, he's not layering on strings. He's writing this is this song is being driven by strings. I can well, yeah, but he does, he but he layers this the, that way. But some of the other songs are based around things, and he still when he he layers strings, but he does them in really and interesting horns. ways. Yeah, and no, horns, he's very yeah. creative about it because he comes from that. You know, he's got a lot of depth to that background in that music and on those instruments. It's not he plays them himself because he also is as well as a ranger is a player. Right. He also plays those instruments, so he's got a lot of uh, history. And as he says, he can't get the classical part out of it. It's very much part of the way he does it. And you can tell that 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 string section that opens that song. It's beautifully that composed. It's not just sitting there. It's yeah. like really. And it reminds me of she's leaving home or something like that, yeah. where, where it's just it drives. Or, or you know, of course, the most famous of all of them is Eleanor Rigby, where it's the actual rhythm part of the instrument. I mean, of the of the song progression, and it's just the voice with it. But then when the band kicks in, it's what it combines to what we heard in the first two songs. Is here comes the rock and roll part of it yeah. coming. It's not just going to be this for four minutes. Yeah. It's a great arrangement, fantastic, and it makes perfect sense that he would produce it too because I could see something like that being in his head and then he sees it realized in that way. Beautiful, beautiful song. And smack in the middle of this wonderful record of great pop rock songs. Yeah. um, uh, The next song on the record, The Reason Why, is another one of the songs like Barfly that's on both Greatest Hits Volume 1 and this record, Superstar. And uh, I love this version of it. Um, and and he really takes it to some places. These ones like this one are, are "Let's Get Lost," which is also on the on both albums. My favorite melody on that. Right the now, the right. work done with integrating the harmonies and and all the orchestral parts into the band is really his writing of bridges and outros is second to none. Really, yeah. On on these songs, especially this one, "Let's Get Lost," they're crazy good those ways. And I say that with having wax poetic even to the point where <laughs> my co-host busted my balls over it. Brian Wilson, Brian Wilson. But it's true. Having said that, this guy, I have, you know, I tip my hat to every decision he makes on this record. To me, it knocks me, as I use your term, knocks me out every time. Every time. Yeah, he, he I think that's a lot of talent in one person and he's using it. It really serves his songs, yeah. and uh, he he knows how to put that all together and make something out of it. And the band's bringing it, man. Yeah, and he's playing great guitar on this record. He really is. He's playing great guitar parts. Let's let's hit the let's hit the reason why. I I love this song. Another great one. <laughs>
love that. I'll be back. I'll be back. It's just like so good. His, I, I wish I could sing like that. His his falsetto is so perfect when he goes up for those. It's just like yeah. It's, and that's that's a little Beach Boy too. Well, you know, I was gonna say we were talking about it again as I was playing, and I, I told Adam, you know, I, when I'm driving in the car, I'm listening to this music, or even when I was home, when I first listened to it, I, I found myself talking to myself like, "Wow, the fuck? How did I not? It's how did we not hear this? Why wasn't it in our face every five seconds?" And um, you know, we discussed a little bit of, of that um, earlier, you know, timing and zeitgeist and all that other stuff. But um, we're spending so much time on these records. And I made the joke, and I think it's true. It's a, sort of a public service because you can't hear this stuff, and that just breaks my heart. And when you play me this stuff, I am so lucky that we have – like you and I share music all the time, and I get to hear a lot of stuff. And, and through the festival, we've met so many great artists and heard music maybe that a lot of people would never hear. And that's, that really is what we try to do with this, with this podcast, and this is a great example of that because this, 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 this stuff is 20-some-odd years old now, 25 years 25, old. this record. Yeah. And, and it's just lost to time. Well, I mean, that's the thing. You know, a lot of times what we want to do is turn, you know, play this music, turn people on to them, get them to go find it themselves. Right. But good luck. <laughs> I mean, you could find it on Amazon and eBay, but it's not easy, you know, and it's not yeah. like you got to find a used copy, get someone to send it to you. It isn't on Spotify. You know, it's weird. It's not. Everything else we played on the Teenage Superstar, even the stuff that, would, that you had an original CD of. What was that band that you had the original CD of that there was a big Vaseline's, yeah. Vaseline's. You could get va- Vaseline's on Spotify. There's no superstar anywhere. Anywhere. And I don't get that. It just yeah. seems like... Now, I'm sure this gets past the whole popularity of it or, you know, I'm sure this is a legal thing. And I'm sure they, somebody owns the rights to this. And have you seen any of these Netflix shows on, on uh, these documentaries on music? Have you seen their series of documentaries on? I just no. watched the one on Lion Sleeps Tonight. You know the story of the Lion Sleeps Tonight. You no. got to see that documentary. It's amazing how it goes all the way back to the 1930s, the original African recording of Wimowepo Wimowepo, and oh, yeah. then how it it just got co-opted, and then it became that hit night in the early 60s, and then Disney got a hold of it, and then the family tried to get the rights to it. The daughters of this man who wrote the melody. It's incredible, and and, and rock and roll is every kind of popular music. Any kind of music is just. Filled the history of it is filled with people slapping their names on it. Who owns it? Who wrote it? Who signed away the rights to it? So maybe somewhere along the line, superstar, you know, much like a lot of bands, lost the rights to these, and that somebody owns them, and they haven't gotten the right deal for it. I have no well, idea. Things but- disappear into the. I mean, like they were on Capital or and Creation, I think, in the, on the first on this record, and uh, who were they on for the second one? Um, hang on, I'll tell you. I have it right here. UK Creation Records for Greatest Hits Volume 1, US Capital for Superstar, and this uh, indie label called UK Camp Fabulous for um, Palm Tree and Fat Dat and the later stuff. But Capital owned this record, so that's got to be something. I mean, that seems But that's, just, huge... that's just where something can disappear, because if you don't care to put it out... Yeah. I mean, that's like... And, and, the, and you're not giving the rights back to the band because you signed them for a big advance, and they didn't make it back so they owe you money so you're not just going to sign it over to them it's just right. sitting in a vault somewhere some lawyer said no I mean I'm just guessing you know some lawyer said no you can't have the rights to it. well will you put it out you know we'll try and see well can you at least put it up on Spotify I don't know I right. mean, we'll, 
I'll get somebody to call somebody, but they're not going to because no. they don't care. It's a shame. But listen, we're having a ball playing it, and, I'm, and, and it's been great just having it to listen to on my own and this record over and over. And it's, it's beautiful. And, and that's why we're going to play most of the songs on this record, period. It, they're all really great. Yeah, because, I mean, uh, it's not like we can send them to Spotify to hear it. It's funny, his later records, which I'm going to get to on a different podcast, when this Linden, which is his band now. Right. Uh, Did they play some of these? A lot of time. They're on Spotify, uh, Linden. And it's beautiful music. I mean, we'll get to it on a later podcast, but uh, it's worth getting to that because uh, well, we'll, I'll continue to tell the story over these podcasts. But uh, you can find that, but not this, yeah. strangely enough. And it's yeah. classic stuff. Uh, this is a song when you really want to talk about big starish influences. This song, uh, I Can't Help It, yes. is very, very like a big star <laughs> rock song. Like Barfly, it has a lot of the big stars, maybe even more so than Barfly. This is a big star-ish song. Right. Uh, but it has horns in it too. Uh, and he really, it's a great little like, Boogie horn part behind it. Yeah, um, it is. Yeah, let's just play. Here's I can't does, help does, it. Does Chilton play on this? Uh, no, I think the one he plays on is just the is one. Don't want to die. Yeah. Okay. Um. So this is I can't help it.
Yeah, you know, I was going to say that feels like forever reminded me of the quintessential, but that might be the quintessential. Woo-hoo-hoo. Superstar. Everything about That's that. Awesome. It, 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 dan, 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 I can't help. It's great. Yeah. Just great. I and, that little clipped uh, guitar. Mm, camp, camp, camp. <laughs> yeah. Which is very big star. And I'm sure some point in the, in the long, uh, you know, run, hopefully, that we have doing this podcast that we'll eventually get to Big Star's number one album. But you, did you know somebody covered uh, In the Streets, which was the theme song to that yeah, 70s Yeah, that's Cheap show. Trick. That's Cheap Trick doing yeah, that? Yeah, that's a great, that's it's a great cover. Them. Yeah. It's Cheap Trick, yeah. Oh, I never knew that. No, it's a stunning cover, and it actually just sounds a lot like... They really just did, they did. ape big... They really just... Covered big star. They on did, it. but I knew I knew yeah. the nuances. That's not yeah. them. Oh wow! I never. I maybe I did know that. I forgot. But anyway, they would have. This band would have done a great job of that. And that's kind of what th- this song sounds a lot like. That. Um, yeah. I mean, just without getting back to the comparisons, getting just, sticking just to what Superstar is doing here is there everything. Even you mentioned the do 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 at the end. Everything he's putting in there, the horn parts. None of that stuff is superfluous. It's all very important to how that song is presented. And there's a lot of stuff going on, but it doesn't sound like a cacophony. It's really well-structured and well-arranged. There's, there's not too much of that, that wall of sound thing I was joking before about Phil Spector, but you know he could get a little heady. Or, or the wall of guitars that you hear like on Born to Run. This is, this is just – it, you could strip this down to just a rock and roll kind of garage rock and roll band. You don't need that stuff, but that stuff absolutely puts it on another level. Right. It's what makes it the, – it's the candy that makes it like a great Beatles track. Beatles could play Chuck Berry tunes, and it was cool earlier in their career. But what they get to later in their career is is fascinating. And, and and you know, we would all probably love the Beatles. But if they had if they had stopped at Revolver, we might not be obsessed the way we are now, right? Because there are a million bands could do that, not as well. But you know, it's a good point. If the Beatles and the Stones just stopped as Chuck Berry cover bands, or essentially Chuck Berry influence bands, right. with those first half of their records, or pop rock early '60s bands. Yeah, I mean, but they didn't. They went and developed right. this very unique stuff that is so much theirs. I mean, they were a great Chuck Berry cover band. Both of them were, right. but they developed into something uniquely them. That's what we really remember. The great early songs are great, but it's not "I Want to Hold Your Hand." As much as I love that song, yeah. that I really want to go back and listen to over and over again. Right, it's the later stuff which blows my mind. You know? And and the one thing that you that always has to be said about the Beatles, and we've talked about it on this podcast as well, is that the Beatles were sort of inventing it. There's a world that all the other bands after them exist in the Beatles. The Beatles invent. There was no Beatles before. They had to invent that. Yeah. So each iteration of the Beatles, the Rubber Soul stuff, which is you know highly influenced, obviously what, what Dylan was doing there, but it's quintessential British pop rock music, and then. As you say, revolver, and then we go on the the we get into areas of the stratosphere that is never that had heretofore at that point had ever been really developed to that point, except for what Brian Wilson was doing. A lot of people were doing it at the same time, but they were inventing the stuff. The big stars and the, the the superstars and everything that comes afterwards, they still have that. That's their foundation. That's their Bible. Okay, here. You're allowed to have a seven-minute song. You're allowed to put backwards tracks. You're allowed to have choirs. You're allowed to have strings. That, that's what the Beatles did for everybody. Well, and the funny thing about Brian Wilson and, and the Beach Boys is that they go there first. Mm-hmm. Like, he moves in that direction before the Beatles do because Pet Sounds happens a long does. time before – a year before Sgt. Pepper's. So far enough in advance that he's almost done with Smile before Sgt. Pepper's Yeah, he was inspired. That's exactly right. But, he's inspired by Rubber Soul, which is predates yeah. the Beatles' experimental period. Absolutely, right. yes. And, and he takes it a step further. The problem is that his fans don't go with him. Right. That, like, said he that. wants – so he true. moves the, the, whole, the whole musical – he moves into the musical future – 
but the fans don't go with him. Correct. Whereas the Beatles fans, when they go there after that, they did. The fan, it's what they celebrate about the Beatles, and they love the Beatles for that, mm-hmm. but they don't actually go with the Beach Boys. And when he does it with Pet Sounds, all of the Beatles fans hate it because they hate the Beach Boys. There's just a, there's a rivalry. You're either a Beach Boys fan or a Beatles fan. And he gets there before the Beatles fan, but Beach Boys fans aren't into it. They don't want him making music like that. They want Surf and Safari. He doesn't make that. He makes pet sounds. They don't go with him. And the Beatles fans, who should have appreciated it, hate the Beach Boys and don't go. Yes. And so it's like, it must have driven him crazy because he, you know, he's the Beatles before the Beatles there. But all the Beach Boys fans desert him and none of the Beatles fans go there. So Pet Sounds, which we now consider like groundbreaking, classic, incredible record, was a huge flop. It was a big flop. A disaster and, for him. And here's the thing. We've talked about this before. Maybe we haven't. Here's the key. The difference between the Beach Boys simply and what the Beatles did, Brian Wilson had no support. He didn't have the audience there that was willing to take the leap with him. They wanted to go back to, to you know, uh, like you said, Surfing Safari, Surfing USA. And Mike Love and the band were questioning it. The label questioned it for a while before they fired him. The father was questioning it. The management. Nobody was in his camp. Everybody was in the Beatles camp. Except George uh, Martin, uh, uh, the, um, at the, the people who worked at EMI, Abbey Road, everybody was like, in, at, you know, after they started selling records, certainly. But so was Brian Wilson. He was selling a shitload of records and still he had no support. Well, the only people that supported him were the uh, Wrecking Crew, the, the, the studio musicians who were so into, who loved playing Brian Wilson sessions. Right. Carol Kay, I can't remember all the other people's names, but, you know, that were, that actually played on those records. Right. Um, and, and maybe that's a difference, you know, because he wasn't making records with his band, really. He, he was making records and bringing the band in to sing on them. Right. Whereas the Beatles are actually making their records, and so they're involved in it as they do it. Whereas they're, everyone else is just doubting, you know, because Brian knows the music he wants to make, and quite honestly, the band can't make it. Right. And Dylan but, went through the same shit, too, but he didn't have a band. He was alone, and he had to get people to play, but he didn't have other guys coming in going, why do I have to sing on this crap? It was just Dylan. So, but I remember when the Beatles asked Dylan how the hell he dealt with it. He, he said, you know, you, you guys have each other. I've got nothing. It's just me out here dealing with this deluge of fame and angst and derision for not being folky. And a lot of that stuff goes on. But all but the that weird me- thing is, though, it's funny. We all think of everyone revolting and hating Dylan for going electric. Mm-hmm. But Like a Rolling Stone is a huge hit. Big hit. And, uh, and it, it's, it's electric. That's the one. That's the first big electric. Right. And it's a hit. If anything, whereas, he brings new people in. Whereas the big uh, Pet Sounds is not. Correct. It's a flop. And that's weird. Some of the songs on it kind of become sort of hits later, but not... I mean, we love God Only Knows, but I don't think it was a hit at the time. Not like that. It was a huge failure for him. Whereas Dylan, as much as he gets the guys yelling Judas in the audience, it doesn't last past the release of the record. Right. You know, the record comes out, and it's like, oh, this is fucking great. Yeah, and Dylan's audience had expanded and been bigger at that point, so he was able to bring more people in. I made this assessment, and people kind of laughed at it, but I think it was apt in the sense where... When I wrote the book about Destroyer, shout it out loud, I was saying about the thing that, that Destroyer does for Kiss is it's completely different. You get Bob Ezrin, who had produced all those Alice Cooper records and, and later on would produce The Wall, put strings on everything and backwards traps and calliopes and, and, and restructured the band. There was no lead up. At least with Dylan, you have a lead up. You could see where he's going. The Beatles have a lead up. With Brian Wilson, he went for it. Now, you and I have talked about it before. The record right before Pet Sounds was very experimental, but no one really kind of noticed it. Well, because the singles are still huge, like Help Me Rhonda and 
Well, Girl Don't Tell Me is one of my favorite songs by them ever. Yes. But it's that's not as big. But but Help Me Ronda's huge, and I think that's on that record, too. It is. Yeah. yeah. You're the one who reminded me of that, and you're absolutely right. The record right before, because for years I would say, the thing about Pet Sounds that came out of nowhere, and that's not entirely true, because you're right. That record, yeah. about four or five songs on there, absolutely precursor uh, what he did on, on Pet Sounds. But getting back to this record, again, this is a debut record by a band. Debut. So they're like, check this shit out. Which is, you know, again, a very gutsy thing to do as well. It's a weird thing about that Dylan thing. I was just checking out the dates. I, I forgot about this. Because the tour that he's getting all the shit on is 66. Correct. That's a tour where he goes with the, the Hawks and he's playing. The first half of the tour is acoustic and the second half is electric. And they're all yelling all that shit in the audience. Yes. But Highway 61 comes out in 65. So there's a year of it there's being. There's a build-up. That's what I'm trying to say. There's a year of it being a hit song before he has to take any shit. For, I don't know if he's, maybe he's on the road in America before that. But there's a year of it being a hit song. You know, before he has to deal with all that crap. And he got way more crap in, in, in England, which is why when you lo- look at a lot of the films or you see the photographs of that tour, he's got a giant American flag behind him. And he was not <laughs> Mr. Patriotic, but he was like saying, hey, Britain, this Bite is me, the yeah. shit. Yeah, I know you got your Beatles, but this is what the fuck's going on now. <laughs> and he took a lot of shit for that. He did, man. That was really got ugly in, in Britain. But, you know, God bless him. And let's that's keep, all in Pennybacker's... Well, it's in, it's in the movie. If you haven't seen it's that movie, one. don't look back. It's, it's absolutely Well, that was the tour before that. That's his acoustic tour. That was his last acoustic tour, Don't Look Back. Don't but Look I'm, Back. What's the Penny Baker movie? The, 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 that's the Penny Baker movie. The second Penny Baker movie, which is Eat the Document. Oh, Eat the Document, right, which doesn't that. get released. It's, it's Correct. Basically. You can find it now, I think. Yeah. And, and I have a bootleg of it. I don't know if it ever actually came out. Never did. Uh, Scorsese used all of that footage in his documentary. Oh, okay. That's yeah. why then. Yeah. Um, so to continue on with Superstar, though, uh, you know, we, we talk about him being a great arranger, and this next song, Let's Get Lost, that's really featured in it. It's not just the strings either. He's got yep. strings. It's, it's like it's an interwoven like, tapestry of strings and horns and also some really cool cascading vocal harmonies that are part of the orchestration, and he's got them all specifically working to slide in and out of each other. It's strings, horns, and all these vocals that move in and out of each other like one big orchestral arrangement, and... This is a, he'll do this on many different songs, but this is a perfect example of like he'll write an outro for a song that is a, a song in and of itself, a long, slow building outro where he brings all the cake and the candy in the store and one by one feeds it to the song and builds into this like you know incredible outro refrain thing. Yes. Uh, and you'll hear that on this song. The latter part of Let's Get Lost is it's a long outro with horns and uh, it's amazing. I keep saying it and every song always kicks my butt. I've said a few things were quintessential. Let me just say this is my favorite melody. It's on the record. This is the, the melody here is a king hell whiz banger and yet all that other stuff does not take away, if anything, it embellishes how beautiful the, the, the phrasing of the vocals are here. Yeah, I think possibly because he is so trained and is doing so much of this himself as far as the uh, arrangements and the orchestrations, right. they really serve the songs. They don't ever obscure the song. They really make it work. But man, does he put together an outro build like nobody's business? You know, it's incredible. You hear it on Don't Want to Die, too, but yeah, like this one is like, is long. The outro on this one takes a while, and I just love the first lines of the song. Don't you feel like leaving? So let's get lost. <laughs> Don't you feel like leaving? So let's get lost. It's right. a way of saying let's get out of here. Let's let's get lost. Um, it's, it really is a beautiful song. And, and and the last thing I'll say about the whole Beatles and the Lush stuff, we've talked about it on this podcast. This is the opposite of what Phil Spector did to Long and Windy Road. 
which is to put strings and shit on it to give it too much candy and saccharin and take away the beauty of the melody well, of that song. Yeah, at, at, at diff- at definitely at different points in history, people have taken strings, added them to things that didn't need them. A perfect example is there's a lot of Buddy Holly stuff yeah, that got like strings and stuff where so it turns true. into treacle or you know saccharin. Yeah. And uh, you know, Paul gets a lot of crap because his songs on. Uh, let it be. I was going to yeah. go. What's the original title of it? Uh, oh, get, well, back. get back, get back. Yeah. That his songs on Let It Be are the ones that have that stuff on it, and so people say he's sappy. But he didn't put that stuff no, on those didn't. songs, and he didn't want that stuff on his and songs. It was done without his permission yep. and without him knowing about it, and he couldn't get them to take it off. But Long Winding Road is so good, you couldn't do anything to it to actually. Ruin yeah, it. It but that's a case of where yeah. the melody is so beautiful in that, similar to what I'm hearing in this song. But in this case, everything that he puts works, on here yeah. works. Yeah. So this is a. Superstar from the record Superstar in 1994. This is Let's Get Lost. Don't you feel like leaving? Mm. So let's get lost. <laughs> Don't you feel like leaving? So let's get lost. And if you ever need a reason, I'll be. Stay. 
Okay, so if you're not by now running to your local notary to get a petition started <laughs> to get Superstar Records available to you right now after hearing that, I don't know. I, if I, you're not right now running to your local record store, which doesn't exist anymore, to find this record, which you couldn't have found there anyways, you're a fool. Except, well, yeah, yeah stay where you are. We got, we got it for you anyways. Stay home, yeah. Um, that's just a beautiful song on every every level. And I'm glad we kind of warmed them up by telling them what they're about to hear with everything that's going on in that. And, and even then, when I listen back, and I've heard that song probably now like 20 times, and uh, it just keeps getting better. So I heard something in there we, I, I couldn't quite figure out. There's like a counter melody that comes in, like a descant that comes in. Yeah, That's what I was talking about, about not only writing orchestral parts for horns and for strings, but also actually writing yes. another different <laughs> harmony hook that yeah. fits in there. Although that's very reminiscent of the one that comes in the uh, in the second verse. Um, yeah, you were pointing that out. I was looking. It's a descending line. Like instead of coming in with the second verse in this one, with, like the other one where it's just the ooze that make the second verse very big star. Yeah. He comes in with a descending. It's like sometimes in the morning. No, no, yeah, no. Yeah, yeah. It's a descending line. That he brings in twice in that verse as the harmony part that makes that verse different from the first verse. But then later on, once you've built the horn part and the string parts and the repeating uh, vocal melody in the outro, he brings back a cousin of that descending line to come in in the outro music too. So like you think he's added everything he's going to add. It's like we've gone around a couple times with the vocal. We've had the strings. We've had the horns. And then you get this. The next thing he adds in is it could be a string. That could be a cello or a violin or a horn line, but he does it with vocals. And so it adds another texture back into the song there. That's that's a, an incredible arrangement. And that's what he his arrangements are so good. And there's yeah. like it's hooked. After hook, yeah, well after said. hook, he writes hooks on vocals, he writes hooks on guitars, he writes hooks for horns, he writes hooks for strings, and then he writes background vocal hooks that go on top of all that that make you just want to sing along with that. Right. It's like a really great film that has so many different aspects, like really great editing or use of, of music or performances by actors, but the story is strong. So you would watch it if it was on a, on a stage or, so, or read it on the page. If it's on the page, the songs are there. Like that melody, to me, him just... You know, where he holds that for a second. Na, na, da, na. Is, if he was just playing on a piano, he'd has me. I'm there. And then he adds all this other stuff, like a yellow brick road trip. We're like, hey, what's this? What's that? Like, everything you said, exactly. That It's, it's an oral, A-U-R-A-L, um, sort of journey that you go on to hear all these new aspects of what he's doing. And it never gets boring. And how long is that song? Like three and a half minutes? It's not. It's, it's four and a half. Oh, it is. Okay. So it's no, I'm sorry. It's, it's four. But four it's only minutes. 220 or so before the outro starts. <laughs> yeah. You know? <laughs> right, it's like right. 220 or something. 225, I think, is where the outro starts. Right. And you get another minute and a half plus. Yeah, of, it's like Desperado's Under the Eaves. You know? Know? You're only halfway home when you're listening to that. Yeah. Well, you know, what a, what a, you know what a song needs to make it a song? You need a chord structure and you need a, a, a melody. And you can add extra things to that and say they're important to you, like the groove. And sure, that matters, for sure. And uh, the words, absolutely. You know, specifically what you're going to say. But, but I mean, essentially, you need a chord structure and a melody, you know, and a, maybe a couple other things. And you can make a great song with just that. And any of these songs would be fine with just that. They are great. But you can also take the time to play great guitar parts. That, like, I can't do that. I can write a chord structure and a melody. I can even write the words. But I can't 
like play a guitar part. I don't, I don't. I can't even play it on piano because I can't play well enough. But he plays some great guitar, and that's good. And that will even develop more in the future when they add a, a someone for the next record, which right. we'll talk about on a different podcast. But uh, you don't have to add strings or horns or harmonies or different hooks for harmonies like right. he does. But that's the thing he does. That's the thing Burt Bacharach does. That's the right. thing the Beatles do that make it something entirely different. Right, you know. and then, and as we said, it, it, it's not superfluous. It's working with it. It's he's just not slathering. It's not putting lipstick on a pig. It's it's an absolutely beautiful thing that he's just enhancing because he can, and he's really good at it. He hears those things, and then we hear them and go, "Oh yeah, that makes sense." As opposed to, do you remember when we played the Carpenters, uh, you know, last yeah. year, and we were going through songs and. And we remembered some of those Carpenter songs as less saccharine than they were because we're young, because everything was lush and fat with strings yeah. in the seventy. Now we listen back and we're like, did it really need all that? Maybe not. I mean, her voice is so beautiful and the songs work. So I don't know. It's it's a production choices. He made all the right ones here, I believe. Yeah, I mean, it's a funny thing. Like we talked about with Long and Winding Road. Uh, Long and Winding Road doesn't need those strings. I don't think they ruin it. And I now I'm used why, to it. I don't think they ruin it because <laughs> the truth is, it's just such a good song and they're okay. Right. Uh, but it might be better without them. It probably is better with. Actually, right. I've heard takes of it without them. And yeah, it's, and the it's Naked better. doesn't have it. The Naked release yeah, that they did in two. It's better without it. But you can't imagine this song to me. They're so integrated a part of the song. It happened in, in we were turning around uh, out of the last chorus into the sort of bridge outro, and I said to you, "Wow, you can't imagine this song without those strings and those horns." Well, you said those horns. I said those strings. And you really can't because it absolutely is the thing. There isn't a guitar doing the lick that leads into that vocal right there. It's a ba, 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 ba. Yeah, yeah. Ba, 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 Be back. You know, you that is absolutely <laughs> well essential done. as part of the song. You yes. know, it, it needs that, and it's perfect, you know, and it's it's not superfluous. Um, no, it's so good. Yeah, it really is. He knows what the is. fuck he's doing. And it, this record is so good. I mean, I know we wax poetic about a lot of stuff, and I think everything we've ever played on, on this podcast, because we work hard and we, we think of the songs and we never play stuff that we don't think is great and we don't want to share, but this is just amazingly good, just amazingly good on every level. This record, I, and we were going crazy at the beginning, and I hope now that people are hearing these songs, they're, they're also saying, man, that's, wow, that's so good. Uh, yeah, I'm better for having heard these songs, as I've said many times here. Whenever I hear songs, I'm like, wow, I feel so much better now that I have – I know that these songs exist and I can listen to them when I want. And that's a shame. No one could for the longest time and yeah. still can't except for this podcast. Um, here's another one with some killer harmonies as well. These ones are stunning and a little bit heavier electric guitar than that last one. These are pretty heavier. Um, we're getting near the end of the record. We're skipping one song here. Uh, I don't know if we skipped it yet, but here's Will I Ever See You. Uh, this is also killer. It is.
running out of superlatives so i'm gonna have to make up a word (laughs) i I got nothing i got nothing it's incredible and there's people this is all on the same album we're not playing like the pantheon like a 12 year period of transition this is all on the same record yeah and and it's quite a record really and that those violins that come and you called it man those violins are just they have to be in there they have to. They really do. Now, the song's great anyway. The harmonies are crazy. And it's just, you know, balls to the wall rock and roll. But those, eh, strings. Those strings that come in, like when he's playing, you know, the 
please. Read right the second verse repetition, you know. Until I ever see you. Be sure. Yeah, yeah. Until I find my way to you. That's just killer. It's incredible. That, and you're right. That's like very Oasis. Uh, that's why I heard sounding, it. and so this is, and that's happening at the same time. This is '94, and uh, yes. definitely maybe is also '93 or '94. I think definitely maybe is '94. I think it just said in "What's the Story, Morning Glory" is '95, and that's one of the problems they have it later in their career that happens is that by the late '90s, after they do this, and and then uh, a Palm Tree, you know, the entire world is focused on two things, and this is something that also hit. Uh, teenage fan club is that they became less grungy and the world was only listening to either shoegazing grunge playing or they were listening to in England at least Oasis and that was like you had to be Oasis to be right and you had to be the Madchester they actually made it like Seattle a place where all these bands were coming from and obviously these guys were from Glasgow and it's a different thing you know they just and also just tonally it's different it has some things in common with uh, Oasis but it's got a lot of differences too. And I think it's sweeter. It's less bombastic. Those guys are really a in less your attitude face. that way too. Yes. You know, um, but I mean, it, it has a lot in common. They they are they love this the same music. Yeah. But it's, it's clearly, Teenage Fan Club, Oasis, these guys, they listen to a lot of the same records. They grew right. up loving the Beatles. They they love a hook. They love harmonies. They, they it's a lot. They have a lot in common. But it's not always in the ways that an audience will understand necessarily because I think a lot of people. I don't know. So did Oasis and Blur in a lot of ways, and they were yeah. considered, you know, arch enemies. Right, Although Blur right. maybe comes a little deals. more from the the kink side of things mm-hmm. and that slice of life songwriting. Um, but uh, I'm gonna play one more song off this record. It's epic to me. It's <laughs> got this insane outro, and it's a song about like I think uh, mixed feelings and doubt. You know, could it be true that I like hiding things from you, and should it be so that there are things that you don't know? Let's get things clear. Don't want to give you the wrong idea. I don't want you here, but I don't want you to be disappear. Could it be you? The reason I don't share things with you. Could it be you? I tell my friends before I tell you. It's about a relationship that has a lot of doubt in it. Uh, and it does it with a series of like builds and stops and starts. And then it just goes through the... It's hard to write an outro that works this well right. and for this long. And even this, this so sentiment, <clears throat> this theme... I don't know. I just had a uh, deja vu. It seemed like you and I talked about a theme like this in the past in a song about how hard – what he's saying here is I can't, I can't tell you the kind of things I share with other people, which is, which is a holding back of intimacy that's a real – you know, it's a jab. Well, there's something wrong in the relationship. Yes. You know? Yeah, it's a real jab. And uh, what some, does he say to you after that first chorus? What would you – if I were to open up, open a door, but that would make you want to know more? You know, and it's like he's not – he sort of plays around with the idea of more connection, but he can't find a justification for it because of however their relationship works. Right. And I don't know what it's about exactly, but it, it musically – I've written eight-minute songs, but I did it with building uh, dynamics in Mrs. Potter's Lullaby and just doing it without it with a good hook and a dynamic, and I did it with – Palisades Park. Right, right. Writing 50 different suites in Palisades Park <laughs> yeah. to make it work, to take you through right. all these different things. He has this song, and he just does it with an outro. And yes. it, it is uh, an incredible testament to his ability as an arranger and a composer to do this. Um, it's like a second song. Yeah, and we're going to play it for you. 
And then uh, can I ask you a question though before we go on? Because you mentioned it. Did was any? Did you hear any of this stuff prior to doing Hard Candy? Uh, I don't remember. Oh, I'm almost certain I did. It would have been right around then, or the year before that. Something I mean, there's like so that. many different influences and so many different things I hear in Hard Candy. But I certainly, when I listened back to this, I was I was trying to think. Whenever you introduce stuff to me that you heard and it blew your mind, I always think in terms of your art and how it influenced you. Just like me, if I read something that's really kicks butt and I think, oh, I should be doing that, or I'd like to try my hand at that. And, and I know that you did that quite a bit with Hard Candy. And, that, and when I heard a couple of songs on this record, I was like, ooh, that has a little bit of what Adam was doing on Hard Candy. That's, that was my... It's funny. I really love this, but, uh, and this, we'll get into this more on the other record, but I think when I heard it at the time... And I'm wondering if maybe I heard Palm Tree first. That I would have been know. 98, but like a year before you started making Hard Candy. Well, right? two or three years. Hard Candy. Oh, that's right. It's right before Desert Life. Desert but I think Life. in my mind, when I first heard this song, I heard the connections with the Beatles stuff for sure. But I really was hearing it with the Radiohead stuff that I kind of forgot. I mean, I really heard that connection, Bill to Spill, Radiohead, some of that stuff right. at the time. I Which think is very influential, I think, on the, second, on the Palm Tree record. Yeah, I think so. Uh, but... I'm not sure, and I can hear it, now I'm hearing it, so I hear it so differently now. I'd forgotten about the Radiohead connection until you mentioned something about it when we were talking about Palm Tree, right. and, uh, and I was like, oh yeah, that's kind of how I associated this stuff back then. It's funny, because I'm hearing it completely differently now, but... Uh, not every song, like three songs I think are, are, are specifically yeah. sort of a Radiohead-esque thing. We'll, we'll, we'll get to it with Palm Tree, yes, but uh, of course. I want to play this, and we'll come back and we'll say goodbye after this. This is Could It Be You, the it's last song epic. on the record, and... Like with Taste and Aftertaste, man, he loves to make a fucking epic ending to a song. Uh, This is Superstar, the end of the record Superstar from 1994. This is Could It Be You.
<laughs> just like <laughs> we're just laughing here. It was it was funny because I got to you know I looked up at you yeah at like the two forty minute point in that song yeah. something like around the three minute point and I I the song ends basically you know it's the end of the song proper and I, I looked at you and I said yeah there's still five minutes <laughs> yeah. left in the song because it, it, and then it's weird because it seemed like only a couple minutes it, it it's so riveting that it seemed like only a minute or two later. That it, it comes to an end, and it's just that drum fill waiting for the ending. Yeah. And I, I looked at the thing. I'm like, oh, God, did that already five minutes go by? And I'm like, oh, no, there's three minutes left. And then it goes crashing back in for the <laughs> outro. I realized, oh, no, there's even more coming. And there's another. It even fooled me that time. There was another three minutes left, and I had sort of like, oh, is that the end of the song? Oh, wait, no, okay. Yeah, yeah. And we hadn't gotten to the xylophone yet. I mean, that is the kitchen sink right there of music. And a few things we talked What's about. It's so it. well composed because oh, it's so good. God. And when it finally breaks down, when the band... <laughs> Band goes away and you just have the like orchestral arrangement in there, yeah, and some of the drum parts. It's so cool. You realize it. how great it is. Like, and I mentioned Paul Buckmaster, the great uh, arranger who uh, did a fantastic job with, of course, Elton John's work. He worked with David Bowie, and you mentioned Madman Across the Water, which absolutely has that kind of stinging, violent string arrangement. Yeah, no, it's those those diving strings that are like almost a. Uh, abrasive and attacking that, that shock you out of moments in the song. He does that. Uh, sometimes uh, Isaac Hayes does that with the guitars against the strings. Yes, hot We butter. were trying to recreate in some ways on a Good Time, right. some of that the way the guitar, uh, uh, like a smooth soul thing, and then a jagged electric guitar that rips out of it. Good the same one. way they do in a, uh, Walk On By, he uses that yeah. technique with the guitar. Going on, going on, going Absolutely. On. I hear yeah. Hot Butter Soul all over that. Absolutely. Yeah. The end of that, no question about it. And, and just the, the build-up of it, and, I, and as I mentioned, um, the drumming on this record is fantastic, but that guy really takes it to, uh, he, his A-game is at the end of that. He is filling, all of his fills are so sublime. They work t- t- perfectly in there. And you mentioned how Beatlesque it is, it really is, and, and I've often said this many times, and, and, and this is kind of becoming a rote way that people look at Ringo Starr now. He's so underrated in how he, especially in those later records that we talk about, how he uses the, the toms as like an instrument, in a, a, a melodic instrument in a sense. And that's what this guy's doing at the end here. Everybody's in on this. So the band is r- ripping along along with all the other instruments that he puts over it. It's, yeah, it's Nelly Grant and Raymond Pryor. And I don't know who plays what on there, actually. It's not listed anywhere because it's so hard to find information on this band. I know that the band was Joe McElindon, Nelly Grant, and Raymond Pryor at this point, but I'm not at all sure. Yeah, I mean, I went to uh, grab the CDs and look at it, and it doesn't list anything on this record as far as who plays on it. It doesn't list any names at all, except for his name as a songwriter. And essentially, this is a trio, right? That's Nellie Grant and Raymond Pryor, but I don't know what either of them plays, because even on all music, it doesn't. It lists all the, like, the horn players and the guest players, like, uh, what do you call it? Uh, like... Uh, Alex Chilton, and strangely enough, who I didn't know was a guest on that record, and it doesn't say what he does on it, but uh, Matthew Sweet. That makes perfect sense. He's listed as a guest artist on that record, but it doesn't say what he does on it. But in any case, apparently he's on it. Um, makes perfect sense. That's... Yeah, no, it does to me too, but I have no idea what he's doing on it. But right. he, you know, he's playing Probably bass singing. for, uh, what's his name at this point, uh, Lloyd Cole, with a bunch of with right. some other Brits, and so and he was in a band, right, with a bunch of guys that. Uh... Well, he plays on all those. Uh, the same band that's on his records is largely on Lloyd Cole's records, with, right? With Matthew Spleet playing bass, and right. Um, I can't Robert Quine on guitar. Right, yeah. I can't remember who the drummer is. Is um, that the is that the CD right there? 
this is the CD for Palm Tree, which uh, lists an entirely different group of band members, um, but doesn't list. Uh, Look at that man! That's like an artifact. Yeah, I'm like looking at it in awe right now because it's like, oh, let me touch it. But there's no real uh, useful information that way. But we should probably get out of here because that's been a whole record. This is like, we've never su- done this before. Superstar. I mean, wow, and you can't get it anywhere else. So you're welcome, people. You're you know, this is you should listen to this here, and we're gonna be back in a week, and we're gonna talk because in the intervening years between this and the next record, they kind of go through some hell because they're on a shitty label, and in order to like keep their sanity, they get off it, but it necessitates them sitting there for a while, which they do, um, and then they do some EPs and some records, uh, but. Uh, and and then they get a new band member. Well, actually, they get three new band members because Nelly Pryor and, and uh, Raymond Pryor and Nelly Grant leave. They get Jim Hutchison and what was his name here? Let me see this. Yeah, sure, sure. Get, no, the Soup uh, Dragons, right? Well, <clears throat> they get Quentin McAfee and Alan Hutchison join the band, and then of course the real key thing to Jim McCulloch, who's left the Soup Dragons, right, uh, and was one of the guys they were all friends with at the very beginning, busking in town with them. Mm-hmm. Jim McCulloch comes back and joins. Superstar, and for me at least, that changes everything because oh, it does. As good a guitar player as as uh, Joe Macklin is, and he's great. Uh, if it's him playing the lead guitar, it could be uh, yeah. Raymond Pryor, Nelly Grant. Maybe maybe uh, Joe Macklin will write to me on. Uh, I follow him on Instagram. Yeah, somebody had written something that they were glad that we did this. That was a friend of his, I think, that wrote it because we mentioned the teenage superstars. Yeah, but uh, yeah, Joe Macklin is on. I just think as Joe Macklin. Uh, he has a band called Linden now that's really cool. Um, and Green Peppers is the band that Jim McCulloch's in, uh, the, his band now. But we'll come back next week and we're going to talk about what happened in the intervening years and Palm Tree and kind of what goes on with uh, Superstar after this. But uh, we should wrap this up. This has been the Underwater Sunshine Podcast. I'm Adam. I'm James. This was a lot of fun. Thank you, man, for introducing me to Superstar. And what a fantastic record it really is. So... Until next time, peace, late.